0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to class number twelve of the Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell class. We are coming into the home stretch here, as we are in the third of theoretically three classes on the miniseries adaptation, which I am loving. I am loving more every time. I think this is uh I, as of, I've now watched the you know the four episodes that we're talking about through today um and, uh, and I have to say this adaptation is just shooting up my own personal charts uh for as uh, just some of the most ad, you know one of the most admirable uh, direct adaptations of a book that I've seen it is brilliant a brilliant brilliant adaptation so impressed uh by the work that they are doing in this adaptation um So uh, that's why I I, I was kind of uh, hedging about the actual length of uh, our classes on this. I have scheduled a 14th class on the offhand chance that we would need one, and it's kind of looking increasingly like we're going to. I wasn't quite sure, uh, uh, of course, because remember I'd never seen the adaptation uh, until uh, just a couple weeks ago, so when I scheduled the class, I wasn't sure... How much I would have to talk about it if I ended up hating the adaptation, I, I, I would have, would rather have taken less time because I don't enjoy talking about things I dislike nearly as much as I enjoy talking about things that I like, but I love it. So I think I might want to take a little bit more time. So we might tack an extra week on and do a, do a 14th week uh, in the class that's looking... Probable At this point. Um, but before uh, we get going, I do want to jump in uh, pretty quickly. One quick announcement. Um, we had originally scheduled last week on Friday, Friday of Thanksgiving week, uh, to uh, do our special Riddles in the Dark reunion episode where Trish and Dave and I got together uh, the old... Riddles in the Dark team, uh, you know, from talking about the Hobbit movies for all those years, um, to talk about the extended edition of the Battle of Five Armies. So um, we d- had to reschedule that because poor Dave got sick over Thanksgiving weekend, um, but uh, and we've rescheduled that for tomorrow night. That's Thursday evening at nine thirty p.m. Eastern time. So, uh, um, so I I i just wanted to make sure that you guys knew about that um we're going to be doing that we're going to be using the same link that we normally use for the Silmarillion film project so uh if you have that link then uh you'll know where to find us that's where you'll find us so again tomorrow thursday evening at nine thirty p.m we're going to do that and then we actually do have a Silmarillion film uh episode this coming week so um Lots of uh, lots of fun. I'm still I'm still reviewing the uh, extended edition. Uh, I'd, I'd, again, make sure I'm all I'm all ready to talk about it. I'm not going to get into that now. I'm interested in talking about this, which I have to say is a superior adaptation. So let's uh, jump right back to Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. But I do wanted to make sure you guys all knew about that. So okay. Last time, I said we were stopping right before I got a chance to talk about Stephen Black. Um, But that's okay, because now we have more stuff to talk about with Stephen Black, so we can do twice as well, well, more than twice as many uh, uh, clips about Stephen Black uh, than I was going to do last time. Um, I think that the the presentation of Stephen's character uh, is very interesting um, and uh, gets also at a lot of the things that I find really fascinating about some of the ways in which... They have changed uh, the character of the gentleman with the thistledown hair, um, but uh, let's 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 look at a few things. The first thing I want to look at, the first clip I want to watch, this is from uh, I, I, one of the earlier episodes. Um, I can't remember whether it's one or two. I think it's one, mm-hmm. or maybe two. I can't remember. Anyway, it's the one where he first gets called the Lost Hope. Um, so I want I want to look at that, and the thing I want to focus on. The thing I want to focus on with Stephen's calling here is to think about the transaction that's occurring here. Remember, this is after we've seen the bargain for Lady Pole, which is done at some length, right? You know, where, where, where Norrell and the gentleman are sort of negotiating, right, how much time should she have, Can, you know, have half her, you know, the terms are explicitly spelled out, though, you know, of course, somewhat deceptively, as fairy bargains tend to be, uh, and Norrell is taken in by that, but apart from the fact that it's somewhat deceptively stated, it's explicitly a bargain that's uh, come to between two people, right? Um, but uh, let's look at, uh, let's look at Stevens. Stephen's first encounter here and see what we notice. I'm going to try, by the way I hope that you won't be too bothered by this, um, but I'm going to try to uh, kind of do some running commentary over the clips a little bit more today, just for the sake of efficiency, so that I can say some things as we go along Um, I I, I tend to like to just kind of get wrapped up in the moment and and watch them and then talk about them afterwards, but uh, uh, there's a lot of clips and so that would be a huge portion of our class so anyway I'm going to try mixing it up a little bit today. There's Stephen. Doing the books. Burning the candle, right? Diligent servant. The row of bells. Of course, the summoning by the bell, picking up on that fairy theme. Um, And, of course, it's there in the book, the significance of the bells. And, you know, there are no bells... In the neighborhood of uh, Sir Walter Pole's house, well, except for the ones in the servants' quarter, right? Those are those are kept. Um, so, of course, we have the the bells out in the distance, which cease, but the little tinkling of the Lost Hope bell. And I love the visual distinction how it's all cobwebby and antique. It doesn't look like the other bells. And here he gets called down the corridor. I think his casting is really interesting, too. He is very attractive, as he's supposed to be, right? But he's not, like, just young and gorgeous. He has kind of this, like, st- you know, his face is still kind of weathered. Yet, Nancy, he's older than I thought he'd be, too. Um, because of the way his looks are built up, I had pictured him as this, you know, like, young, maybe, you know, mid-twenties, you know, just... Person may call and call in this house, and yet no one comes. So, one question I have here: What is the transaction with Stephen? Why is Stephen bound? How does Stephen get bound to the gentleman? Um, And that's something that I think is 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 a little bit not exactly not hard to follow in the sense of you know I think that it's done sloppily by the film, but it's. it's kind of sk- skimmed over in the sense of Stephen seems to be getting kind of a raw deal here. But I think that thematically, that's part of the point that the film seems to be making here. What Remember what we saw just happen. The bell rang and he answered it. Right? Um, they, uh, uh, they... He came here and answered the summons of the gentleman of his own free will. And even the gentleman's first words there, a person may call and call in this house, and yet no one comes. Well, but Stephen has come. At last, finally, Stephen, and Stephen alone, has answered the summons. Right. And he's answered the summons just because he's a faithful servant and the bell was rung. He could see it wasn't one of the normal bells. And so he's sort of taking on taking it on himself to investigate because that's his job. Right. So he is merely sort of faithfully performing his duties um, to uh, uh, to to his master, to, you know, to 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 his employer, to Sir Walter. But he's um, he's not. And yet he seems to have, in some sense, kind of signed him up for this. John, that's a really great point. John Maline uh, emphasizes how uh, interesting it is that in the TV show, <clears throat> uh, there's this clear um, emphasis on agreements or bargains being made, rather than mere abductions, right? And John, you're absolutely right, the book lays the emphasis strongly on abductions, and you'll recall we got that emphasis from way back in the beginning, when we first hear the bells ringing in the York Minster, excuse me, cathedral um, with, this, with the, the members of the Learned Society of York magicians, right? When they are worried about being abducted by fairies, and the narrator's making these, you know, sort of snarky remarks about how unlikely it is that they would be selected for that honor uh, by the fairies, who Standards are probably higher, but you'll remember it comes up right at the beginning, and it's it's totally about abduction um and yet, John, you're right in this in the TV show, um I'm gonna just call it the film because I don't even really know exactly what it is. I mean, it's this kind you know it's a mini series technically, I guess, but anyway, I'm just gonna call it the film as in the film version, the screen version rather than the book version of the story um in the film we see uh, this emphasis on bargains. And John, I think that that's thematically significant um, because that seems to be the the issue. It, it, it changes significantly, or rather, let me say, it informs very strongly um, the nature of the gentleman with the thistledown hair and his relationship with other people, that there isn't any question of him merely sweeping in and abducting somebody which we never I don't think ever see him do it in the film um <clears throat> but there is about you know being careful about entering bargains um uh, with him so um yeah yeah good michael you're right it it you know it does seem a little bit perplexing that both lady pole and arabella there's some kind of contract situation, um, but we don't get that with Stephen. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Philip, I think that's exactly. Uh, Philip says people are at least in some form or to some extent at fault, and I agree, Philip. I would, I would, I would maybe say, um, I would maybe say that in a different way, and say that the will or the choice of some mortal person. Is involved. No one is just like one moment there in England, and the next moment, hey presto, they've been abducted and they don't know why or what's been going on. That kind of is, it seems, what happened with Arabella, for instance, in the book. Um, but with, um, I mean, she had made the acquaintance of the gentleman with the thistle down hair, of course, uh, at the Pole's house. But anyway, it just seems to have been an abduction. Um, but now, of course, not necessarily the person herself. It's Noral who enters into the bargain on Lady Pol's behalf. So she is a victim. She as she is herself as unilaterally a victim as if she had been kidnapped, right? She had no say in this whatsoever. Um, but yet again, somebody of their own will entered into this. And again, this is where I th- what I think we get with Stephen. To some extent, his own will has contributed. He answered the call, right? The bell summoned him and he came. Um he doesn't know what he's doing, he's not signing himself up to be abducted into ferry, right? He's just trying to do his job. But that seems to me the important thing, right? In his role as servant, um, he is sort of compromised by his faithful performance of his role as servant. Um and it's from the beginning, the film seems to sort of juxtapose Stephen's servile Role to sort of speak broadly, both of his actual role as servant in the household and his sort of broader status as a black man uh, in this society. Right, his connection with slavery and the slave trade. So, sort of the the, the sort of the servile associations um, with Stephen in England, and the way that those are connected with his bondage uh, to Ferry. And the way those dynamics work—that seems to be really at the heart of what's going on with uh, uh, with, with Stephen um, and his his uh, well bondage. I guess I just said uh, to uh, uh, to 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 Ferry and to the gentleman, um, and the the interaction between those two things seems to be a really central part of Stephen's story in the film. And I, I love it. I think it's really fascinating uh, the way they uh, uh, the way that they that they. Get into this. Anyway, here let me continue. All oh, tonight, at lost hope. And look at me. Uh, yes, <laughs> I like the look How at me. How can I
1: meet my lady
0: like this? I need to be shaved and have my eyebrows freshly permed. Nobody told me you were here. Okay, good. Nobody told me you were here. Um, again, this emphasis on him not really knowing what's going on, but he is going to volunteer, of course, to shave uh, the gentleman. By the way, um, after I saw this scene with the gentleman being shaved, right? you can barely see his stubble, though you can hear it when he drags his creepily long nails over his skin. Um, it's a wonderful sound effect, that scrape of his, uh, of his nail on his stubble. Um, but um, uh, but you notice that Norrell is always unshaved. Um, Norrell needs a shave in the worst way every day. Like every single time you see him, he's got like a day and a half growth, basically, on his face. Um... Which is, uh, I, 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 I just I think it's 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 sort of a part of Norrell's character, right? On the one hand, he's sort of fastidious and everything, but he's also a hermit. He is not used to sort of performing for others or being looked at by other people. He's not accustomed, apparently, to really caring that much. Uh, he's certainly not physically vain, um, but anyway, it's I, I don't know why Norrell's stubble really stood out to me. I just kept noticing it after this after this scene. Anyway, okay, so so here we see the sort of these themes established. With Stephen, let's uh, let let's carry on here. Uh, sorry, scene number two is uh, this is the scene where Stephen is. Uh, Told about his royal destiny uh, for the first time here, um, and this, uh, in case you can't make it out at the beginning, what Stephen is doing, as you can see, he's still he's here back in his uh, in his sort of butler's closet here, um, and he has his brush and dustpan, and the, the what's in the dustpan are the shards of glass from the mirror that Lady Pole just shattered in the hall, um, and she shattered it in the hall because she's terrified of mirrors. She is essentially rejecting the summons of the gentleman, right? By shattering the mirror. It's, it's sort of a, uh, a, her attempt to rebel against the call of the gentleman, it would seem. Um, at least that's how I understand what she is doing in that scene when she shatters the, the glass. So, it's, so it, is the, it is the glass from the mirror that Lady Pole has shattered for that reason that Stephen is carrying in his dustpan uh, at this moment. And that seems, strikes me as a relevant point here to frame the scene. I think it even says something that Steven hasn't um, tried to dust it. He would never let any of the other bells get that dusty, right? He's far too careful. Fascinating that he does not put his br- brush and dustpan down before he goes in, right? before it was that creepy deserted room with the vines growing down the fireplace and now so look how this is a road looks like a fairy road right you see the path between the trees it's not just a forest
1: Stephen my dear fellow how noble you look seeing you so I know you are truly destined
0: to be a king now what do you make of what the gentleman says and how he says it here um, how noble you look he says seeing you thus uh, you know it, it, he, he says that seeing him thus you know makes him more than ever convinced that Stephen's destiny is to be a king what does he mean by thus? Seeing him thus. Seeing him thus in his in his butler's livery holding a brush and dustpan? Because that's the thus in question at this moment, right? And it, it, it one of my reactions to this scene was like in the book it's I think pretty clear. Yeah, Karita was just pointing out the same thing, how look says to the man with the dustpan. Um, um exactly. In the book, it's pretty clear that the gentleman seems genuinely to admire Stephen and to like Stephen, and it isn't until the very last second, that is, it's not until Stephen is actually in the process of killing him, that the gentleman realizes that Stephen you know, hates him and, 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 and doesn't like what he's doing to him. That, you know, that that the gentleman is aware of any tension or distance between the two of them. Um, and whenever the gentleman... I, I, I never got the impression, I could be wrong, like it's possible that uh, I was being thick in reading or just sort of not reading suspiciously enough. I always thought the gentleman was perfectly sincere in the book, in all of the compliments that he gave to Stephen, he seemed really to believe it. Um, and if he... Uh, if he sort of made comments about Stephen's appearance, he was disregarding the other things, right? Uh, You know, like the fact that he's wearing a servant's livery or something, or the time when he takes Stephen while Stephen is in the middle of polishing silver, right? And he's got his, like, you know, silver polishing gloves on and things like that, right? Um, But, um... Um, yeah, Carita, it's exactly that. Uh, Carita points out that in the book, Stephen strikes everyone with his noble looks, even persons not so interested in physical beauty as is the gentleman. Absolutely, we've got, of course, the shopkeeper uh, who is just all you know, uh, all googly eyes at him, right? Um, and uh, uh, despite the fact that that seems to be, it's pretty clearly an interracial situation, which is a little unusual, right, at this time. So, but again, the point is, this is how attractive Stephen is. It would seem. Um both physically attractive and attractive as a person. Um so again it's easy to believe the gentleman that the gentleman is uh is is um sincere. Um uh but um yeah, interesting. Donna Smith says the gentleman perceives Stephen through the filter of fairy, glimpses of the future Stephen, the king to be. Um Yes and you can, I think, make that work in the film version, too. I mean, of course, he's just about to show Stephen his true self, right? The
1: nameless slave shall be a king in a strange land.
0: The visuals, I can work with. That is, I can imagine, like, okay, in the mirror we're seeing him as the gentleman truly sees him, right? I could totally roll with that but not the audio, right? Not the dialogue and the delivery of The Gentleman with the Thistle down here in the film I'm talking about, right? Um, Not only because of how, like, creepy and ominous his voice sounds all the time, right? Um, But because his quotation there, right? With the nameless slave shall be a king... uh, That is, it sounds... I can't avoid at least the suspicion that the gentleman is manipulating him here. It makes the earlier compliments... um, It makes his earlier compliments, the how noble you look, or excuse me, how noble you look. Right. Um, It makes that sound like uh, insincere, right? Um, Likely, he's just manipulating Stephen. That Stephen... uh, In the film, it strikes me very much that Stephen is merely his pawn, or he is attempting to make Stephen his pawn in his plans. Um, And that he has elected Stephen because Stephen fits the prophecy. The nameless king shall be... Or the nameless slave shall be a king. Um, And so he's going to... um, He's going to... He's going to make use of him, and he's going to bring him along, and he's going to manipulate him in these various ways. That's how it sounds in the film. And that, I think, is genuinely uh, different. A genuine departure from the way the book does it. Now, Here's the thing, and I might I'll try to bring this together as we go along um maybe I'll be able to kind of pull it together a little bit more clearly when we get to the end but i'm still I'm still in observation mode myself, so I'm not ready to offer uh fully realized conclusions at this point. but I will say in general, one of the things that really struck me very forcibly about episodes three and four was that we begin to see some more significant departures uh, in the way the story progresses and and in many of the elements of the story. And yet, I was just absolutely delighted by the departures from the book. Delighted because they struck me. uh, The pattern that I see or I should say, the pattern that I have seen developing so far is that when the film version of the story is deviating from the way that the story progresses in the book, it's doing so in such a way as to basically take an alternate path to a very similar destination. I have not yet seen the story simply go off, um, you know, sort of tangentially and not come back. I think it's... uh, um, I've been very struck at uh, the sort of trajectory of the departures, where they seem to be getting, and almost all of them seem to me as really admirable ways to convey some of the ideas and themes from the book, but to do so in a much more time-efficient way uh, than the book, because they've got to compress it. Um, But... But you can't just compress. This is, like, for instance, what makes so many of the Harry Potter films so dreadful. I I think especially, to me, the most egregious example uh, is Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. You know, you've got this huge, thick, massive book. And they try to just do almost, you know... They cut out some stuff, but they try to do everything really fast, right? That's how they try to compress it. Um, They compress it like the whole story is on fast-forward. And I, I always feel like I'm sort of panting at the end of that film and feeling like that was barely coherent when I have read the book multiple times. I can't imagine how anyone who hasn't read the book can even follow what the heck just happened in that film. That's not, I think, a very good way to try to compress a long book into a shorter film. Um, What they're doing here, the ways in which they are, on the one hand, sort of leaving uh, uh, you know leaving some elements behind going in, in what seemed to be totally different directions, and yet I feel, at least so far, that they're really coming back and ending up in the same place. It's really cool. I'll give more examples, and as I say, I, I want to see, I don't want to speak too soon. It may be that in the last three, I still haven't seen the last three episodes yet. I'm, I'm trying to k- just kind of keep it fresh as I go along, so I've, I, I've not yet seen how it ends. Um, but to this point, anyway... Um, it seems like that's what's uh, that that's what's been happening, and i find that I find that really cool um anyway okay so back to uh back to this scene so now it talked a little bit about the gentleman's attitude and the way in which he at least i take this as there to be at least more of an element I'm not saying that he doesn't admire stephen at all or or whatever but that it seems to be much more manipulation than spontaneity. Spontaneity seemed to be a genuine element of of the gentleman's character in the book, and I don't see this gentleman being spontaneous... ever. I can't think of any time in the films where he seems to be doing something genuinely spontaneous. Um yeah, Kimber, he's engineering things. Philip Lord says he's calculating. That's very much, I think, what we see um, all the way through, certainly through these first four episodes. And Kimber, you're absolutely right that what we see is the gentleman uh, engineering his own downfall unknowingly. Um, uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, very cool. Okay. um, Now... My other question, though, and this is the other thing that I find really cool about the film's treatment. Stephen's reaction. What do we make of Stephen's perspective on all of this stuff? Because it's not the same as Lady Pole, right? Lady Pole is one extreme of reaction. You know, the, her suffering and her frenzy um, and her apparent madness... Because um, you see, it's not just the nonsense that she sa- that comes out of her mouth when she's trying to explain, right? It's not just the, the rose at her lips that makes her seem mad. That's a big part of it. It's also the frenzy, breaking things, mutilating myself and attempting to commit suicide and occasionally going out and shooting at magicians that really seals the deal, right? Um, and those are all... Or almost all I'm not going to lump all of those into one category, but those are all seem those are all acts of rebellion, right acts of rebellion or protest yeah Carita, she she's absolutely fighting tooth and nail um uh the whole way absolutely Stephen he doesn't react like that. My question is what do we make of his reaction um but anyway, so here's one of the first you know he was just. So far, in the two clips we've looked at, he's been trepidatious and weirded out, right? I
1: have, I have certainly dreamt of you. Lost hope is no dream. I certainly it is dreamt the of finest you. of my mansions. You are merely under an enchantment that brings you each night to join our revels.
0: See, he's looking... See, we, You see him looking down at the brush and dustpan here. And then at the thing... Now, that expression... I'm going to go out on a limb and say he doesn't look pleased. Right? Um, he doesn't... Um, you know, so... He's certainly not positively overwhelmed by this, right? Um, he, he seems kind of... F- Freaked out and confused you are still under an
1: enchantment that brings you each night to join our revels. We have been dancing there for days and days and days. Forgive me, sir. If you were to find it in your heart to release No. That is impossible. The bargain was made.
0: I don't know what happened there. When he touches him here there and Stephen does the (gasps) thing right the bargain was made he says
1: that is impossible the bargain was made
0: the inhalation and the blinking makes it sound like something just transpired there when he put his hand on does he see something does he experience I don't know exactly what he's experiencing there um but um yeah, Carita, I agree that crown is pretty hideous. Um, I have to admit that that crown reminded me of the king's crown and the Princess Bride more than anything else. But um, anyway, um, I, I, but I'm sure that's not the primary reason. Uh, but anyway, so I, uh, the implication, I, at the very least, I take there is that uh, the the gentleman is is sort of conveying to Stephen the power of his own claim, right? That is impo- It is impossible that Lady Pohl could be released, right? This is Stephen's first request to the gentleman. You know, could you find it in your heart to... No, that's impossible. Or, you know, I won't say it like the gentleman does. Um, but, um, uh, Tom, that's a really great point. Tom Hillman says, "...the gentleman rarely actually touches anyone. He comes close a lot, but not quite." Um, yes, and Tom, I do think it's very significant uh, when the gentleman touches somebody. It's pretty significant. Um, he is kind of touchy, but, or as you say, he's kind of like my hands hovering around people, but not quite touching. And he—I mean, we saw him touch—you know, sort of lift uh, Norrell's wig, right? We saw him—you um, know—we see him lay his finger uh, on the lips of is it Arabella or Lady, but anyway, we see him, we see him do some, we see him touch, uh, uh, Arabella's hand, uh, with his fingertip, um, so, but I agree, Tom, I think that that's a, it's definitely a little motif going on, uh, in the, uh, in the, in the film version, um, but, um, anyway, anyway, yes, Tom, his touching of the, uh, the, the Moss Oak, uh, woman, absolutely, um, yeah, and Tom, good point as well that uh, the wig isn't Norrell. He doesn't touch Norrell himself. He just touches his wig and looks to see what's under there, what this man is beneath his costume. Right? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. Anyway, so Stephen, let's see, Stephen, what's I do not this?
1: I don't know what I've done to deserve such kindness, sir.
0: He goes along.
1: I'm sure I've not done anything at all.
0: To deserve kindness like sir. this. Ominous Yours transition. Are
1: the most excellent manners,
0: Stephen. <sighs> he really does have excellent manners. Oh, look, he lives in a ruin. Gosh. Oh, well, that's interesting. Um, especially knowing about ruins, as we do. Um, notice, of course, we're, we're getting a, a very clear... A uh, set of cues here. Yeah, that does seem to be a shipwreck in the background, Nancy. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, yeah. So we, we, we get some pretty clear cues, right? We and Stephen are receiving some pretty clear cues about whom and what he's dealing with. So certainly, if Stephen hasn't been freaked out before. He should be freaked out now. This is a very ominous transition, especially since Stephen is saying, I don't know what I have done to deserve such kindness. And as we say, as he talks, says such kindness, we've got the, you know, the, the skeletons and the skulls with spears spike through their eye sockets and all that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, the skull still seeming uh, to scream in agony here, right? You know, so... Uh, this does seem to be, by implication, the kindness of the gentleman, which Stephen perhaps does not deserve. um, A a lovely sort of double sense there. Um, So, the gentleman is definitely bad news. He seems to be using Stephen, or wanting to use Stephen, claiming uh, to have struck a bargain with him, though Stephen certainly doesn't seem to know uh, what he was doing, or why. he. I mean, he just was like, I'll shave you, right? Um, And uh, I'll be polite and accept your invitation. Um, And yet now he's been sort of suckered into this and he's going to be, his dustpan is going to turn into a a scepter with a hand on top and all that kind of thing. Um, But it gets really interesting um, at the end of uh, at the end of episode three. And this is, of course, the business with Stephen's name.
1: If you wish to do me a kindness. It is not unusual, Stephen, for a slave to take his master's side. The Raven King himself began life as a nameless slave in a fairy kingdom and rose to great heights. I am not a slave, sir. No man who stands on English soil can be a slave.
0: See the patriotism with which he said that right? No man who stands on English soil. Can be a slave, right? He's spoken with dignity, right? Um, that he does not accept that he is a, just because he's just because his skin is black does not mean that he is a slave, right? So it, it is on the one hand a patriotic statement, right? Because he is in England, he is. If he were elsewhere, okay, yes, he would be a slave. But by God, in England, he is not a slave. So there's there's a, there's a patriotic pro English element to that. But of course, it's also about his own personal dignity, right? don't look at me that way. Don't assume that I'm a slave. I may be a servant, but I am not a slave. Right? Um, in fact, remember that it's just earlier on in this scene that he compared his role as servant not to slavery, but to kingship. Right? When uh, uh, when the gentleman was saying was talking again about making him king, we'll come back and look at that scene a little bit later on. Um... Uh, Anyway, when he t- talks about making him king Stephen's response is that he's already king of his own little realm right um in harley street so he's he's um because he's not just a servant he is the, he is that he he rules that house right um so again we see his his own his own dignity his own self respect but um yeah, as John Moline points out, of course he's not actually standing on English soil here. Um, and Tom, I agree; it's a it's a beautifully iambic sentiment, isn't it? Right um, the the rhythm of that line, his uh, English soil line, is uh, is 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 quite strident uh, and uh, and lovely.
1: Sir Walter's father, he was kind to me.
0: Now the personal connection. We have
1: been christened and educated. Christened.
0: Now the gentleman is going to undermine this, right? He's he, he, he so his first like patriotism, personal dignity, uh his comfort in his own skin, his comfort in his own with his own status, uh his affection for Sir Walter Pole and Sir Walter Pole's father, right? They've always been kind to him. He reciprocates their kindness with his loyalty and faithfulness. Um Stephen does not find any does not have any problem with his arrangements, right? And with how he lives and what he's doing. But that christening, right, that's what the gentleman is going to seize upon here. And again, I can't help but feel that this is again not spontaneous but manipulative. Um The name Your mother. All of a sudden, Stephen in blinking uncertainty, right? This sort of childlike look. My mother, right? He's, he's clearly, he seems barely even to have ever asked the question who were his parents?
1: Oh, indeed.
0: amazing that Stephen would be saying where is this, what is this place? Right? He doesn't know what he's looking at. He's looking at the hold of a slave ship. Everybody should know. I mean, it it seems incredible that Stephen can't even guess at what he's looking at. Right? Um, But again, what we see in Stephen is sort of this... what he's looking at is not part of his own sort of self-history, right? Um, he might... He, he knows that he was born from slaves, right? He knows this, um, that he was brought onto English soil and thus made free as an infant. But... Um, but when he's looking at this, he's not looking at his, 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 his initial... Reaction is not. Oh, this is a part of my past that I had forgotten, or that I have never known. It's it's distant, right? What what is this place, right? This is not part of him. This is not part of who he is. Um, it is as you say, John. Enormous contrast with the civilized, slave-free England. Absolutely. Um, and Nancy, yes, very good observation. Nancy's saying that uh, she thinks I'm right about the. Manipulation. When you look at the gentleman's eyes on Stephen as he watches, uh, he seems clearly to be calculating the effect of what he's doing. Exactly, Nancy. That's exactly the kind of thing that makes me feel so strongly that Stephen's just being used. Unlike in the book, where the gentleman really seems to think that he and Stephen are BFFs. And there he is, little Stephen. Oh, not Stephen. In the middle of this contest,
1: your name.
0: right, with his mother who looks like she's like sixteen, which is quite realistic, right? Um, see the shock and affection the white man comes in, right? And takes Stephen this away. image right there of the white man carrying little soon to be Stephen away with the African family, friends, um, you know, his mother who has just died in childbirth, and the the looks of horror and the hands reaching out, um, you know, from this community that he he has been ripped from. The way that Stephen in this moment is visually made, almost, it's not just that he was born a slave. It's like he's a symbol of slavery themselves. Just as All of these people, right? Just as all of these Africans have been ripped out of their communities in Africa, right, and put onto this slave ship and are being sold off to America. So now Stephen is being ripped away from that small subset, small tortured subset of the community. Now here, naked and cold and deprived, and yet now he's being—you know—but still he belonged there. There was his mother, and I don't know—is this uh is this a relative you know this woman who was delivering him um is she a relative is she just a friend you know is this his father who knows you know we we have no idea and he will never know um but uh but it it's it look i mean how this recontextualizes, like the way in which it identifies it it doesn't just connect him, like, remember, you came from slaves and, hey, you were born in a slave ship, right? I mean, the visceral way in which this scene t- ties, like, his very essence to, like, the essence of slavery is really, really powerful. Um, and, you know, the faceless Englishman, um, the faceless white man uh, who just sort of coldly, callously take, take him away, who, who even who's like, the, the, the very fact that the white man is clothed here, when everyone else is naked, makes him look almost weird, you know, in this scene. Like, the, he's just other, he's different, like the gentleman is different, right? I mean, it's not an eyebrows issue, but do you see what I mean by that? You know, there's that sense of, like, he, he's he been abducted, right? Just like John glass was abducted by fairies, Stephen Black has been abducted by the white men, right? And raised among the white men, just like uh, John glass was was raised among the fairies, Um it's uh it's really really interesting um and I just so, so the way that this kind of transforms everything and his own again you think back to his patriotic statement and his sort of sense of his own p- place and his own dignity and everything just gets shaken uh by this scene. it's just unbelievably uh unbelievably well done
1: his family where you were born a slave, and your mother died a slave. This is what has been done to you. This is what has been taken from me. I can make you king.
0: Notice the way that the... Doesn't he sound like a demonic tempter throughout this, right? I can make you king. Right? I mean, it's... Uh, uh, anyway, it's so... But notice. Notice where he turns that, Right? He doesn't—his emphasis is not, I can restore to you—he emphasizes things that have been taken away from him, right? But he doesn't say, I can restore these things to you. Instead, what he's offering him is essentially vengeance for what has been taken away from him, right? That's the sort of the final twist, um, is, I will make you king of England, which, on the one hand, would seem kind of counterintuitive based on what he just saw, right? Um, but anyway, um, it's the only reason it seems to me why he would uh, why he would want that would be for vengeance, right? Um, to put the English in their place, um, to reverse the slave master relationship between. Stephen again especially as Stephen is sort of the embodiment of african slavery in this moment right so let's uh let's get some of our own back and subjugate the english to the african slaves right that's justice that's vengeance for what has happened that seems to be the gentleman's plan. Kimber, what a wonderful observation. Kimber says, he is doubly stealing Stephen from his new communities, alienating him mentally from the poles, and then setting him up for vengeance against English society. Yes, yes, again, Stephen was at peace with who he was, and where he was, and what he was, right? Uh, you know, w- with the world that he lived in. Um, all that is being disrupted. I mean, the, the look on his face I th- here, I think, is really moving, right? We see his longing for, I mean, this vision of his mother, whom he'd never known, right? Yeah, Kimber, in addition to kidnapping him to Ferry. And, of course, because Kimber, that's exactly the thing, right? That's kind of the the ironic, uh, well, no, not subtext. Um, well, no, it's the ironic context of this whole thing, Right? You, Stephen, are the essence of slavery. You've been stolen away, right? He you know, looking at how just like just like John O'Sglass, right, he's been taken away and he's been raised as an alien uh and slave among the among the white men among the white English, right? But um but Kimber, as you point out, he's at the time he's being told this, he's been kidnapped to ferry, right, by the gentleman himself. So how is the gentleman different, right? he's not different. Um, In fact, exactly the kind, the things that the gentleman is sort of accusing, both explicitly and implicitly, accusing, you know, Sir Walter and his family, and the English in general, for the gentleman is himself doing. Right? He is um, essentially, he has placed Stephen into bondage. Stephen is now more of a slave, than he has been before. And he's all shaken up, very understandably. His eyes are looking okay, how wide his eyes are open, right? Here's my favorite point. Watch this. You see? I I love this about this film. Every detail... It's just one of those films where every detail has been considered so carefully. I just... Every time I review these scenes, I notice different things. Look what he's holding. What's he got? See what it is that he's holding in his hand? As he staggers back into the house? Yeah! He's... He's holding a key. Right? He has the key, the key to the door between England and Fairy, right on the one hand, right. But just even just, it's just okay. he holds the key. Stephen does, right? I, I love it, just love it, so cool. Anyway, okay. Um, all right, more, more. I'm gonna try, I'll try, try to hurry through my. Thing. I I love the way that they treat Stephen in this in this film. It's it's so cool. Um, but I I, I, I got to be a little bit more disciplined. Okay, more Stephen. My penultimate Stephen uh, Stephen passage here. Oh, whoa. Oh, whoa. It's okay. It's just the King of England in his nightgown, as you were. i be
1: of assistance, sir.
0: Wearing his red cap. Yeah, no, Brian. I know that no, they would never guess it was the King of England.
1: Let this music be the envoy sent to summon the king. Let this slipper be the hansom the king shall receive. And let the moment of this flame's death be the moment the king shall appear.
0: What do you make of this? I'm thinking of Stephen here, not the king. And not yet of uh, Jonathan Strange either. Uh, I can't help but miss the. You know, set the moon before my eyes spell, which was you know with the moon and the bees and everything that 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 was really cool. I kind of missed that spell, of course, Um, but um, but the fact that he instead uses the summoning spell, which I presume they're going to use again later on when they try to summon Jono's class, and so the film is setting us up in anticipation for the summoning at the end. I I. At least again, I, I don't know, but I'm assuming that they're going to be doing that. so I really loved I really loved that, uh, that parallel. Um, what do you, uh, what do we see? What do we see here from Stephen? In his reactions? I mean, look at his listen to his words, look at his face, right? This is not this is supposed to be the moment right uh the moment when uh Stephen is supposed to kill the king of England and take his place, fulfill his future destiny right um but um uh, but yeah he 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 doesn't um, have any control over this he is. Absolutely, yeah, he's terrified. Absolutely, yeah, Brian, I love the footman, right, the, or the the coachman, right, the driver up there the whole time. You know, like his first, he sees, you know, he sees the old man suddenly appear in the middle of the road, and then Stephen goes down, and and then the gentleman appears, and Stephen has his conversation with the gentleman, and then he goes, Stephen goes back and gets up on the cart. Um, I I I, I do, always kind of hope for the. Coachman's sake that maybe the gentleman did some of his fairy magic and made him forget it all, but boy, (laughs) uh, uh, Coachman's going to be drinking himself into a stupor tonight. Uh, But anyway, yeah, Kimber, exactly. Kimber says, boy, if he didn't realize how enslaved he is to the gentleman before, he should now total physical control against his, his, his will. Absolutely. I mean, we see his slavery to the gentleman, can't be any more explicit than in this moment. He is physically a pawn, right? He, he's being, I mean, talk about being manipulated. He's being manipulated like a physical puppet here. He has no idea what's going on. He, Stephen, is completely terrified. He is trying, he is calling out warnings to this strange old man in his nightcap. Um, He's calling out warnings against himself like look out I'm about to cut your head off right it's like in the last when he starts rushing forward he realizes what's going to happen and I love this staring at his hand afterwards like this is not just a where is this where did the sword go moment but a like what did my hand just do Um, yeah, yeah it's um it, it's again manipulation. The manipulation seems to me uh, really pretty clear. And again, remember the one-sidedness of their bargain. Right? If, if anybody has been abducted, um, it's been Stephen, which again seems like very appropriate. Again, th- the way in which that connects with his um, with his his identity as a slave. Anyway, like the Africans were um, were were abducted. From Africa, in order to be taken into slavery in the first place. So um, we see that, and, and, but it's really only with Stephen that we get that element of this really emphasized uh, so much. One last Stephen passage.
1: Perhaps we can do it
0: out these now. Yeah, John Segundus.
1: I must go back to Harley Street. i for it, my lady. It is ridiculous to part so, Stephen. And we both know we will be together again in only a few hours. Do not be concerned about me.
0: What do you make of Stephen's expression here as he's looking up at John Segundus? And what do you make of Stephen's expressions when he's like making his disapproving um, expressions around Arabella earlier on? Right? Um, why does he try to? War- why exactly does he try to warn her off? Um, and I think the answer to that—the answer to that—seems to me a little bit complex.
1: Do not be concerned about me. I feel I shall be more comfortable here.
0: And how adorable is Mister Honeyfoot? I, I shall. When Mr. Honeyfoot comes out with the blunderbuss. I just uh you just can't c keep... but this is right after that scene when he when he just oh,
1: your I do not wish to give you
0: the wrong impression of me, but um <laughs> one of my favorite lines of the whole episode. I do not wish to give you the wrong impression of me. But <laughs> but, but then okay, okay, now, so here's my question. What impression is John Segundus attempting to make? (laughs) One wonders.
1: May I ask you something? What is it, sir? What is the magic that surrounds you and her ladyship?
0: Am I invading your personal space?
1: There is a rose at your mouth. And another at hers. And the music... I see it. It's clear as day. What does that mean? I don't know what you're talking about, sir.
0: (laughs) Good afternoon. I love the expression of of the gentleman. Uh... When he opens the door and he's like, <laughs> there he is, just standing and looking kind of creepy in the doorway. Um, what do you make? I don't. I I really don't know what to make of Stephen's facial expressions in this exchange. Um, so I'm thinking here of the. Not only is the like strange madhouse guy like again. Like I don't wish to make the wrong impression, but. I'm going to touch your face and look invasively up your nose, um, but I'm not crazy or anything. I just run the madhouse. Uh, but anyway, it's um, when he when he talks about the roses at his mouth and another one at hers,
1: and another at hers.
0: He turns around. This expression. Is he... alarmed? What do you... what do you make of this? Angry? I mean, he looks kind of cross. Not here. After he gets his... whips touched, right? He's like, you're invading my personal space again, dude. Here. It's a very, it's a very blank, blank affect. See, yeah, Brian Yoder says, you know, how do you know that? See, e- exactly. I I don't know. He doesn't seem shocked. You know, he's not like, oh, how did you know? He could say something. Couldn't he say something? I mean, no, he can't explain, or he'll start talking about fairies and people on rugs and that sort of thing, right? But he can't explain about it. But I don't get any impression that he couldn't say... I mean, based on what Lady Pole was able successfully to say, the indirect ways in which she's able to allude to her situation, I cannot imagine that the rose at his lips would uh, prevent him saying um, how did you know or gosh I'd, you know I I, I don't know um, yes Philip there are roses on their mouths in the embroidery there are um, but I I don't see it's I don't see it as it doesn't look like wonder it doesn't look like I mean he just looks kind of cross and then he turns away is he afraid of what's gonna happen to him <laughs> this expression just gets me every time. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, he, he, he uh, yeah, Donna, annoyed is how it looks to me. Annoyed is a good way of, uh, that you're definitely capturing what I'm seeing, anyway. Um, Brian says he doesn't think he can trust Segundus. In the book, it seems pretty clear. That both Stephen and Lady Pole, both we, they both attempt to tell people about it, and they both fail. They both have the same problem, um, and so they both give up trying to explain because it's no good when they try. Um, but again, I, this was his actions here were to me a little bit of a uh, um, a little bit jarring because they were different, it seemed to me, from the book. Stephen, I... I, I, I Stephen Black from the book, if John Segundus had come up to him and said something like that at this point in the story, I think he would have responded positively. Maybe with relief. But it's not relief that he showed... I don't see a, a, a bit of relief um, in his... Um, in his... Uh, uh, in his face there. Um, and then we get the gentleman, and he's like, oh, look of resignation. I'm going to look back over my shoulder and go out and join, and turn my back on John Segundus, and close the door in his face, and go, um, um go out and join the gentleman. Uh, Tom says that Stephen in the film was completely at a loss. Yeah, maybe. Donna says he's covering, uh, covering for the gentleman out of fear and knows there is no way out, possibly. Oh, here's the one thing I want to suggest. And I want to suggest it very cautiously. I think... We see Stephen divided in his heart here, um, especially after the scene with his name, the the vision of the of the slave ship. I think one of the things we're seeing is the shaking of his loyalties. I'm not saying that he's been necessarily like totally converted to the gentleman's side, but um, I think he's kind of anti-white Englishman at this point, um, and doesn't, uh, sort of pushing back against Segundus. He he looks at Segundus with distrust and suspicion, when Sagunda starts talking this way, rather than, really, so rather than reaching out to him as a potential lifeline, which is, again, what it seems to me that Stephen Black in the book would have done had somebody come up to him and said something like that, um, he doesn't do that. And again, I see this as a consequence of the manipulation that the gentleman has done. The gentleman has tried to drive a wedge between him and... The English society into which he has been acclimated, even if imperfectly, because he still is a black man and is still treated like a black man. Um, though notice we haven't had any evidence of that in the book. We get those, you know, Stephen thinking about, you know, how like a jury would never would would uh, would would convict him no matter what he was uh, accused of and all that kind of thing, right? We get several uh, sort of reminders of how he's in fact not perfectly acclimated in English society and still doesn't quite fit in. We don't get any of those things emphasized in the film. I can't think of anything that has really marked Stephen as an outsider, other than merely the fact that he has black skin. Um, but we, anyway, we, we see the gentleman. At least I would. I want to suggest the possibility that the gentleman has succeeded in driving. That wedge, oh karita, that's really cool. karita points out that uh Segundus is wearing a pale coat like the white man on the ship who took him away from his mother um yeah that is that is interesting um yeah karita i agree the 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 set dressing the set uh the the and and costumes and everything in the film really really well done i it's, it's so much wonderful attention to detail um i uh, um I agree. So, anyway. um, I I think that we can see his sort of being divided, and yet we see him clearly, with the emphasis clearly on his slavery again, right? As he opens the door, and there's his new master standing right there, and uh, you know, sort of waiting to draw him back into uh, you know, back into into his servitude. Okay. Um... I can talk about Stephen Black obviously for a really long time, so but I'm going to try to accelerate my pace here a little bit. This is really deplorable, and uh, let's talk. I want to I want to sort of broaden a little bit, um, thinking a little bit more about the gentleman with the thistle down hair, and in particular, I want to be first. I want to kind of look at a couple sort of general points, and then in particular, I want to look at the way he interacts with other people, and especially. Um, uh, especially Arabella. I thought that the way that his relationship with Arabella was set up was really fascinating uh, in the films. Again, one of those things which was, again, uh, a pretty significant departure uh, from the book, and yet I thought was so cool and so interestingly done. So, okay, um, first, uh, you knew I was going to talk about this scene, right? Uh, the painting of the Raven King, um, which features the gentleman on it, right? Oh, man.
1: This is strange
0: This is in Windsor Castle, of course
1: I've seen statues of him in the north Engravings in books I never saw a painting before hmm? The Raven King That gentleman there With the silvery hair that would seem to be one of his fairy servants Yes Yes, and there is a unicorn And a manticore And other similarly ridiculous creatures this is a picture of everything that has disgraced and crippled English magic for the last three hundred years.
0: Thanks, Party Pooper. <laughs> it does look like Snape is the is the king of England. Great. I love that juxtaposition. I left the transition in because I love this particular transition. You know, as we uh, zoom in on the face of the Raven King and then transition to Jonathan's face staring into the fire. Um... Yeah, yeah, Nancy. Good point. And Nancy says I like that moment where Norrell is really uncomfortable before he goes into Raven King condemnation mode. Absolutely, um, you know, Nancy. It's one of the things that I find so fun- one of the one of the departures, um, which I thought was so well done. The way in which the emphasis of the story is drawn so much more onto Norrell's relationship with fairy. Um, uh, you remember. By the time Norrell delivers that line, which he delivers in the film as well, by the time Norrell delivers that line, when he says to Jonathan Strange, um, "What, uh, what magic have I ever performed that needed the help of a fairy? Remember when he says that? By the time Norrell says that... We are so far removed from the resurrection of Lady Pole, so much has happened in the meantime, and so little allusion has been made back to that moment. It's not like we've forgotten about it, but it does not keep coming up. It's not a major thing. He tries to put it aside, and then he kind of does put it aside. And we're almost, not quite, but it's almost like we as readers are like encouraged to forget about it, or at least to sort of de-emphasize it. Whereas, in the film... The cover-up, right, Norrell's great cover-up of his fairy dealings and what happened with Lady Pole is a major theme, down to his uh, his censoring of Jonathan Strange's mail, right, his snooping on the, 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 the mail that's going back and forth between Jonathan and Arabella while Jonathan is in the peninsula for fear lest... You know, lest Arabella reveal something, right? He's because he's a his whole motivation for that is the cover up of his fairy indiscretion, right? Um, It becomes a uh, it it it's 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 such a prominent theme, and I find that it really brings the focus squarely onto that, which I think is a great move. Really cool. Um, Uh. Okay, so. What do you guys notice about the painting here? Great question, Nancy. Who's the lady here? Catherine of Winchester, presumably. That seems like a good... but we've had no reference to her, right? Um, uh, That is to say, I mean, knowing what we know from the book, that's, a, of course, a very sensible guess. But, I think it's interesting and important that in the film, we have no context for this. There is a very prominent lady at this you know sitting at the left hand of the raven king um who is holding a raven in each hand and dressed in a red dress Mick absolutely um. That that color red, right, which is, uh, yes, red, red is a defense against fairy. And it's not mentioned in the film, though, the red cap, the king has his red cap uh, in the film as well. But anyway, so we've got this lady in a red just unnamed lady in a red dress, um, at the side of the Raven King. What um, What do we make of it? The unicorn, oh, by the way, I think the unicorn's really obvious. What the unicorn... What the unicorn is. Have you ever seen the unicorn tapestries? Famous medieval tapestries. Um, uh, they are housed at the Cloisters Museum in New York City. I I uh, love the Cloisters. I it was it was one of my favorite things about living in New York. Is to go up there all the time. Um, and um, uh, some of you might even have seen me wearing my unicorn tapestry tie uh, that I got there. Um, but. Um, uh, anyway, the Unicorn Tapestry, famous medieval tapestries. Uh, the unicorn looks almost identical here to the unicorn and the unicorn tapestries. Uh, so I think that that's, uh, to me, it's sort of a visual connection to you know like an authentic medieval uh, uh, work of art. Sort of recontextualized in now a Raven King context, right? Which is cool. But of course, we also see w- it's got a collar, around, like a belt around its neck. It seems to be imprisoned, right? Is this... um, (laughs) Yes, Tom, I agree. The woman looks like River Song, but that's not important right now. Um, uh, (laughs) The point is, again, who is she? We don't know who she is. Is she also a captive? Is she a captive like the unicorn Uh, might appear to be a captive? Um, We have these devils... Right? These horned devils peeking through uh, and the gentleman peeking through um, uh, over here on the other side. Um, you know, what uh, what do we make of this? What does this suggest about the relationship between Janosklaus holding his naked sword um, not across his knees like a judge, but uh, in his hand, like an executioner. Um, the, of course, you 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 may remember the uh, the icon of justice. You know the the lady with the with the blindfold and the scales in one hand and the naked sword in the other hand. The naked sword in the hand stands for execution. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> oh gosh, curious suggests Yes, look, we have uh, Snape the king uh, and his wife. River Song, let the fanfic begin. Yes, it does sound like a fanfiction nightmare, doesn't it? Um, but, um, uh, yeah, good. And the Emperor in the cards. Yes, Mick, very good. Very good. Uh, and, yeah, doesn't he look like Childemus? I agree he looks like Childemus. Um, yeah. Uh, remember how the gentleman is framed here. Remember, he's fr- he looks like the gentleman in the tapestry that uh, uh that Lady Pole makes telling her story. And you may remember in the tapestry that Lady Pole makes, she shows herself and Stephen Black in England, and then she shows them framed in a window of Lost Hope, right? They're in England with the with the roses uh at their mouths, and then they're in Lost Hope and Stephen has his uh has his his, his Princess Bride crown uh and she's dancing, right? Um and uh, uh, so, but but it's it's in that frame. It's in that window frame in Lost Hope. And he, the gentleman, is in the frame here, that same kind of frame behind John Oscloss, right? Um, does that suggest that he is, is he sneaking in or sneaking up on John Oscloss? Is he bound by John Oscloss? That, you know, uh, Norrell says that he was John Oscloss's fairy servant, what were the dynamics of that relationship exactly? I don't really know. But the fact that he is connected with the Raven King is made explicit in this scene. Okay. Uh, more.
1: A most serious matter has arisen, Stephen. All our wonderful plans have been rudely overturned. Once again, it is the stupid magician who thwarts us. Who is that old gentleman, sir? Why, the King of England, of course. I had brought him here so that you might fulfill your destiny by cutting off his head and taking his place. But the king has 13 children, sir. The crown will be passed on to one of them, and certainly not to a man such as I. Oh, the king's children are all fat and stupid. Who would wish to be governed by such frights when they might instead be governed by you, Stephen, whose noble countenance would look so well upon a coin.
0: But even when he says that, it sounds like flattery rather than spun. You know, it, he in the book he seems the gentleman seems genuinely convinced that the fact that Stephen's face would look far more attractive on coins uh, than the fat and ugly faces of the Prince of Wales, um, it seems to him to be genuinely. Like Stephen's qualification, and he assumes that everybody's going to recognize this. When the gentleman, he says the, the gentleman here in this scene has just said many of the same words, right? Oh, like that, you know, the people of England would never wouldn't want to be ruled by one of those frights, right? But I don't believe it. When he, I believed it in the book. I don't believe that he means it here. Um, he seems like he's just trying to manipulate Stephen and puff him up. And here it seems the puffing seems to be being done with imperfect skillfulness. That is to say, I'm, I don't think Stephen's buying it, um, and it just comes across a little bit weird. Like again, like the the he the gentleman is kind of out of sync here with what Stephen really wants and what will really please Stephen. Um, he really you know hit it on the head with that slave ship thing you know the the with the with the you know the the movie clip that he showed him um but the flattery uh the sort of the displacement of the fa- of the flattery from an act of spontaneous deception to a, a, a spontaneous affection to an act of deception uh seems to me uh, to sort of make it a little a little shakier and again here what we get from the gentleman in the book is that sense of like he's just he's just weird he's alien remember, remember we, we spent a long time talking about this he just has kind of different values they're not totally unlike they're not unrecognizable to us but just the way he looks at the world is kind of different from the way that we look at the world um, this I, I don't think we see that he's kind of different um, but he's only different in as much as his eyebrows are longer than my eyebrows, right? But they're still in the same place as my eyebrows. (laughs) You see what I mean? Anyway, uh, he he sounds more Machiavellian than alien, if you see what I mean.
1: About what, sir? The magician, Stephen, is our enemy. We must destroy him utterly and take his wife Oh, Stephen you are brilliant of course it will be very hard to find but it will destroy him utterly
0: you are brilliant it's exactly the kind of thing he says to Stephen in the book but here Stephen has not only not said anything at all he's he's doesn't when the gentleman now is going to carry on to explain what Stephen is meant in some sense to have suggested Stephen doesn't even know what he's talking about. Right? Um, So again, this is not like him just operating on sort of a different level than Stephen. Uh, This is him really carrying on a one-man conversation. Right? Um, And kind of roping Stephen into it. Mosel.
1: We must find and awaken a Mosul. If we use it well, the magician will bargain our life away. And the beauty of it is, Stephen, you will have no notion that he has done so. so
0: Coachman's like, um, I'm having a weird day. But it's okay. I'll wait. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um... Uh, so, anyhow, um, I, Philip, I agree. The uh, scheme to get Arabella is a lot clearer in the film than it was in the book. It's certainly much more plainly emphasized uh, in the film than it was in the book. But even that is just like what exactly he's doing with the moss oak and and why he's singing. You know, all of that that whole scene and the way that's handled in the book is so much more alien. And Stephen doesn't understand what's going on, and we don't really understand what's going on. I didn't understand what was going on. Um, Whereas, again, here it's made much clearer visually and uh, verbally. Okay, Uh, going backwards a little bit here, this is the first time when Jonathan Strange successfully summons the Gentleman. Now notice, he's using exactly the same spell. On purpose, he is using the same spell that Norrell used to summon him. Um, so that to me is already really significant, right? Remember, of course, and again, this is something that gets, it's really kind of, it's downplayed a bit in the book. Strange spends all of that time and effort trying to figure out how to summon a fairy servant, right? And trying and failing and trying and failing. Norrell obviously knows exactly how to summon a fairy servant. It's in one of those books that he won't let Strange read, right? Because when... Norrell needs to do it in order to bring Lady pullback. He, he does it first try. It's not, a, it's not a problem, right? Jonathan just doesn't have access to that information. Now, uh, in the film, he apparently does. He uses the same spell, and it works just as well. The difference comes in the attitude of the gentleman, Right? Same thing with the lighting of the candle. We've seen Norl do it twice by this point. Here's Jonathan. I've lit it. He's looking around. Here's the creeks. Remember that sound? That sound will be a motif. It worked. He summoned the gentleman and the gentleman summons Stephen, right? Who has clearly gone through a door in order to serve drinks and finds himself in a completely finds himself in Jonathan Strange's study instead, right? Um you know, that's like in the book, of course. But notice the difference? In the book, the gentleman was just showing up to sort of snoop and spy on Jonathan and keep an eye on him. Here, Jonathan has summoned him and summoned him successfully, except the gentleman chooses that Jonathan not perceive him, right? So the only difference between Jonathan's summoning and Noral's summoning is the gentleman's attitude towards the gentleman was revealing himself to Norrell on purpose. Um, The gentleman is concealing himself from Strange on purpose.
1: I hope you do not mind me bringing you here, Stephen. Oh, do not concern yourself about him. He can neither see hear oh, us he attempts to summon me but I do not allow myself to be seen
0: I love how crowded this room gets
1: he is just as stupid as the other one the other one I'm very nearly as ugly what
0: Bill the gentleman's uncertainty Bill he was not yes, meant to hear him, and yet he did hear him. Do you hear voices next door? Faintly. And we saw this in the book, right? Jonathan hears him, thinking it was somebody next door.
1: I think two old ladies live on that side. Well, we should be going soon. No, oh, it's not like me to be late. Jonathan, do you remember the first spell that you cast? spell to find out what my enemy is doing presently that was only the name of the spell on the little scrap of paper so. do you remember who you were shown who your enemy was how could mr norrell be my enemy come there we must be ready to leave of course what a strikingly attractive woman so.
0: so much going on oh my goodness so much to talk about notice the the four points of this discussion right we've got arabella and jonathan talking about noral and jonathan right her recalling to him that first spell that he cast the one that marked him as a magician he was initially identified defined as a magician by the spell that identified noral as his enemy Right? So we have this, this sort of the specter of the enmity between Strange and Norrell being raised by Arabella. Um, so we see two things going on there at the same time. right? We see both uh, an allusion to the tension between Norrell and Strange, the enmity between Norrell and Strange, and the tension between Arabella and Jonathan, right? where she's all like, watch out for Norrell, and he's like, How could Norrell be my enemy? I don't understand. Right? In the way in which they don't see eye to eye on these things either. Then, of course, we have... So, while they're talking about the enmity between the two of them, there's the gentleman stalking right there and looking over at Jonathan's wife. Right? Um, So, we have the real... His real enemy in the room with him. So, we have sort of the third point of that triangle. The one which really in the end is going to bring Norrell and Strange together. Or at least does in the book. Um... And then at the same time we get Stephen as the fourth point, right? Who is who is like, sir, sir? Who is trying to appeal on behalf of Arabella, but also trying to keep the gentleman from interposing himself? Like he he seems to be worried because Jonathan seemed to be able to hear him, right? Is is like you know he's worried about what's going to happen if uh, if uh, the enmity of the gentleman is I don't even know who it. It's not clear exactly whom he's trying to protect and what's going on. And then the final touch. Who banishes him? Arabella banishes him. Arabella blows out the candle that drives, and the gentleman vanishes, right? Um, uh, very, very cool. Such a well-constructed scene. Just love that. Uh, almost as much as I love this moment. The auction.
1: Oh. Four hundred guineas. Five hundred guineas. Six hundred. Seven hundred guineas. Eight hundred guineas. ma'am, thank you. Eight hundred (laughs) guineas in advance. Eight hundred guineas with the lady. At eight hundred guineas and going once. Sir, sir. sir, Going twice. Your books. And your books. Two thousand guineas. 2000 guineas try right here any advance of 2000 guineas going once okay
0: twice and so mr norrell and well the way in which this scene conveys like what's going on in five people's heads right the like the the version of this scene as seen by you know like like the narrative of this moment, right, as described by Noral, by Arabella, by the gentleman, by Lascelles, by Drawlight, by the auctioneer, right, all of them are seeing different scenes and you can see uh, the different things that they're all perceiving. I love the dynamics of this. Um, how, when the gentleman sits down and his face comes into, fo- comes into focus right there behind Arabella's, uh, it is so cool. Actually, let's look, move back a little bit more quickly here. Um, notice, so here we've got this guy, sorry, where was I here? Okay, so you've got this airbell is over here. We see this guy in his sort of dark cloak, right? So when we move forward, we've got air, but we see this guy or, you know, this person, I think that's a guy behind her, right? So we see somebody in this dark cloak, but it just looks like one of those other, you know, one of those, like, maybe they're porters or something, being probably servants of the auction house, um, in their liveries in the back. Okay. Um, but then he's gone, right? Now there's nobody behind Arabella. And he looks over, and this is this is a very tense moment. Right it's a very tense moment between Noral and 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 Arabella this is one of as in the book one of the first instances of really clear where the rivalry between them the fact that there's going to be a rivalry despite the fact that they're master and apprentice now theoretically um you know so so the tension between Arabella and Norrell is really important and then whomp a guy in a dark green coat uh, it comes up and at first it just looks like that other guy, right? Whoever like wh- whoever was in livery standing behind and then it turns out to be the gentleman with a really intense expression on his face. Just love how this scene is done. Um, and he looks over and he's like oh my goodness it's the fairy dude sitting there. And then this whole exchange is he just is staring transfixed at the fairy right? And Arabella's in the foreground. This, this was like Arabella and Norrell scene, right? But now she's not even in focus Right, she's looking over and she thinks that she's the one that he's looking but he's not even looking at her He's looking at the gentleman right and the way that the focus shifts Right, how she's in focus and now she's out of focus and he's in focus, right? Like he glances briefly at her, but he's not looking at her and she's looking at him right and her expression right here, like as she kind of turns, let's see, let me go backwards here. Let's not see it. Watch her face.
1: Going okay, once, so, so.
0: right? She's like, "What are you doing?" Right? And she, she has no idea how to read Noral. Like on the one hand, you were bidding; he was bidding against me, and he seemed really determined to bid against me. Is he letting me win? Right? And why is he staring at me? Right, she's trying to interpret his stare and his non uh, uh, his non bidding at the auction. Right, and not she's not able to parse any of that. And then he bids the two thousand guineas, which seems almost like again now his opposition is being changed. Like this is him declaring. His independence of the fairy, in some sense. You look at Norrell's unshaved face. Anyway, sorry. Um, uh, no, it's so it's it, 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 it's like he's not even bidding against. Like, why did he bid two thousand? That wasn't the next bid, right? Why is he leaping up to two thousand? That seems absurd. Well, it's not Arabella he's focused on anymore. It's the fairy. So his like absurdly high bid seems to be this act of defiance against the fairy himself. Um, Anyway, uh, it's two
1: thousand guineas. Try uh, any advance of two thousand
0: guineas. Going once. See, and now she's really upset because he's still staring back at her, and so now she's like, "Oh my gosh!" He's like rubbing it in. He is a complete jerk, right? But again, he's st- he's not looking at her, and she doesn't even realize he's not looking at her. And LaSalle's—I love LaSalle's face too. LaSalle's, I think, is really well cast uh, in this in the film. I love. LaSalle's casting. I'm less of a fan of Drawlight. Um, well, maybe it's just because he's so odious and horrible uh, in the film that they've succeeded and therefore I hate him. But, um, but anyway, I love LaSalle's uh, expressions. Anyway, cause so um, twice and the so. and the music no. and, and he just doesn't change the handkerchief. She doesn't see him, doesn't know who he is, just sees the handkerchief and walks away. But it's like he deliberately reaches out to her in normal sight. And saunters past him in the full view of everybody. Nobody else notices or cares. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Love that scene. Um... Yeah, Nancy. I think I think yes. That's what I dislike about Drawlight in the film. That you've put your finger on it really well. Nancy says that uh, Drawlight is a lot less credible than he is in the book. It's hard to believe that he's well connected when he's so obnoxious that everyone immediately hates him. Um, yeah, he seems a little too odious uh, in the film. Uh, a little too odious. A little too affected. Because, um, as you say, yeah, it's like how could he ever dupe anybody um, in that uh, in that with that. With the way that he is uh, in the in the film. Um, okay, now let's watch the gentleman put in put putting the moves on Arabella. This is strange.
1: Oh, Mr. How is your husband? Is he still wherever he
0: is? <laughs> is he still wherever he is? I, I haven't heard
1: from him. He is sure to be bored at home, madam. But- as soon
0: as he has tasted war. Yeah, Nancy, I love that point too. Nancy says, I love how she reaches for his name, doesn't find it, and then stops worrying about it. Yeah, that that struck, struck me as very true to the book as well. Uh, Mr whatever right um yeah like it's not even strange that she doesn't know his name um what's happening here what are we seeing here um we know in the book that she has met the gentleman at lady pole's house which is what we see here this is at the poles um and the conversations they have seem a little bit inappropriate like he's promising her outlandish gifts, right? And Jonathan, if not actively jealous, is like a little bit, you know, a little bit not uncertain, but I mean, he's a little bit like, I don't really like you talking to strange gentlemen whose names you don't, but he's just too busy teasing her for not even knowing his name. Um, uh... That's, uh, now, Karina, I agree that this is possibly not the most effective wooing ever, but it's not the most ineffective wooing either. Like, I mean, okay. Like, he looks creepy, and he talks creepy, and, you know, those are two major handicaps in the, you know, pick-up line uh, 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 sort of world that he seems to be entering here. But my point is, that seems to be the context here. If we didn't know... Imagine we're watching this and we, we without the background, right? We don't know who the dude is, right? We don't know that he's a fairy and that he's wanting to abduct her and take her back to his fairy palace. This would just look like a guy putting the moves on the married lady. Um, I mean, notice what he's planting in her mind here, right? Um, is your husband still wherever he is? Notice the thought that comes to her mind as soon as he says... As he asks about her husband, she says, "I have not heard from him yet right which shows both that she's worried but also maybe that a seed of doubt has been planted in her mind Does he really care about you he probably doesn't care about you that much right now, and he certainly won't care about you much when you come home when he when he comes home right you are unloved and abandoned by your husband, and you should abandon him right um Uh, Yes, Rickle, good. It's the gentleman's words that Arabella quotes back to Jonathan when he gets back from the war and she's concerned about him getting bored. Absolutely. We see that his words do, in fact, sink in. So he's trying to divide the two of them. To me, the importance of this, and again, this is something we did not really get explicitly in the book, um, was we see the gentleman wooing Arabella. It's not as simple as a straightforward sexual seduction. But it's kind of we're given a kind of seduction context. If you see what I mean, like that—that that is, the way that he approaches her is made to resemble the way that a man who is attempting to seduce a married woman would approach her. Do you see what I mean? It's not—I'm not identifying it, um, but but I think that a, a deliberate parallel. Is being made. And that parallel is a striking one, because we don't see that in the same way. Remember in the book, when we're talking about the gentleman in the book, our emphasis was on sort of the gentleman as collector, right? We don't see him as collector here. We see him as seducer here. We see him wooing Arabella, trying to win her over to him, um, and to come to him of her own will. That's a very different thing we do not see the gentleman doing that with any of the people in the book. Um, and I think that's a really important contextual difference. Uh, now, more this is um, back in the study. She's try- He has just said, I wanted to show the whole scene, but it was too long and I knew I'd be running out of time, which I am. Um, so he's just been talking about how her husband obviously doesn't love her. He's, he, he's abandoned her, right? Because C- he left, you know. Went off to go wherever it is that he is. He doesn't know, he doesn't care about Jonathan going away to war. Um, he's just uh, dis- dismisses it as abandonment. And he's trying to figure out what she is most attached to. Right? He's doing research. That's why he's handing all this stuff to Stephen. He's trying to figure, he seems to be, trying to figure out what does she really want? What is she most attached to?
1: I'm so very tired, sir. We must listen to her, Stephen. We must pay very Close attention to what she says and what she does. We must find the correct moment, and when we have it, we can carry her to Lost Hope, where she will be loved and admired as no man is loved.
0: Hey, is gonna touch mind. her. Oh, psych! It looked like he was touching her, but he went was over here, right? And then she he didn't, it was a miss. In fact, it's almost like a, like she kind of unconsciously dissed him there, right? As he's moving in for this this intimate moment, and the music is swelling, and then she just moves, right? Oh! Oh! The burn! Right? Um... Yeah, Brian says he even seems to take it as a diss. Yes, he does. What's she doing? Probably writing a letter to Jonathan, right? Now, so now notice, right? We must pay careful attention. We must stalk her day and night and listen to everything that she says. And why? He talks as if he really intends to please her. This is one of the moments in which he kind of sounds a little bit like he did in the book that is like what I was talking about with Stephen, where in the book he seems to be just genuinely, you know, quite honest and spontaneous in how he talks to Stephen. Right? I'm not saying he's being exactly spontaneous here, but he seems to actually believe that well, I don't know, saying that having her come to Lost Hope is best for her, exactly, but that she would want it, should want it. We can carry her We can carry to her Lost Hope, to Lost Hope.
1: Where, where she, she will be loved, she'll be loved and, admired and admired. As no man has loved or admired her
0: before. Here she's all underappreciated and now she's leaning forward to write a letter to her husband. Right, so we see the disconnect between them. Right, what well, looks like they're about to come into contact, but they're actually out of contact. And uh, because what he doesn't get is the actual connection between her and her husband, and certainly he doesn't get at all her husband's connection to her. Again, he assumes he left. Obviously, he's abandoned her. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, we're upset about Lady Pole. I think this is right after Lady Pole has just hurt herself. Oh yeah, Donna, I... Sorry. Donna, I love the butterfly in the window, too. So many moments like that where they just, they, they have this beautiful visual image that kind of captures it, right? As I recall, Donna, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it transitions from Lady Pole to the butterfly in the window, Right, we see this beautiful thing trapped inside the room, and it can't escape. Love it, love it, love it. And yeah, oh, Kimber, yeah, look, she's, she's wearing a red dress. Oh, you're right. Oh my goodness, it's even got the sleeves, just like the. Uh, oh, it's got a purple skirt, but still, yeah. She pulls out her handkerchief after having walked away from his handkerchief. This is your distress.
1: She merely has a rose. I don't A rose? Why, I could take that away. As easy as breathing. What do you mean? That I could remove what they please to call my lady's madness. And how would you do that? I would need your help, ma'am. Your assent. But I should not ask for anything that would not be exquisitely desirable to you. You ask for something in return, sir. If you can do such a thing, if it is within your power to help, then for the love of God, do it. But do not make a bargain of my friend. You will forgive me, sir. We should not meet again without my husband present.
0: Ooh! Bam! Yeah, and Tom, she said the word. Oh wait, the handkerchief. Good thing we don't look too much like the claws of a raptor there. Um, she get yeah, Tom. She used the word bargain, right? You will not make a bargain on my friend now. Um, we can, uh, we have to call a spade a spade here. What did that sound like? Especially given the lead-up that we had, right? First we had the, like, hey, you pretty little thing with your husband far away, who's probably doesn't love you and is going to be really bored, and don't you want to find another man with far more devastating hair, and... Right? I mean, it's the... It's... it's You know, right? So that's the first one, and then the, like, we must stalk her and listen to everything that she says, and t- take her away where she will be loved and admired, and... And now? You know, this, like, I can help your friend, but I first must have your assent. Right? And when he says... You know, assent to something that she will certainly find exquisitely desirable. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It's, I mean, this sounds like an indecent proposal that he's making here, right? I mean, it it's seriously gross, right? But, I mean, now, I don't think the gentleman is actually saying, "Have sex with me, and I'll help your friend." But it sounds like that's what, and I think that's what Arabella interprets. That's why she pulls out the husband at the end, right? I, we, we should not talk without my husband presence, right? Like, back off, you skanky creep, is what she's saying to him there at the end. Um, so anyway, but 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 she gets it, right? You are offering a bargain. You know, he first he says, "I'll need your help," or it sounds like he's going to he's gonna say, but that he needs her assent, right? Um, what sounds like I can help your friend if you help me help your friend, right? Turns into what is explicitly a bargain. I will help your friend if you. Give your assent to me in what certainly sounds shady, if not actively immoral, and um, and she recognizes this as just this is, you know, if you have the power to do it, do it. But this is disgusting, right? Um, and he's mad. Now this is back to the beginning. This is the scene that comes, that leads right up. We're going to stop right where we started with the uh, uh, Stephen's name scene. This is the front half of that scene.
1: I have been meaning to offer you an apology, Stephen, and an explanation. No explanation is necessary, sir. My recent concern for the magician's wife has rather prevented us discussing the matter of you becoming a king
0: notice his own recontextualization my own, my recent concern for the magician's wife right, oh, now it's not that he's obsessed or anything it's not that he's infatuated with her and it is certainly not that he's infatuated with her and that she dissed him hard, no, 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 no. those aren't the things that have been happening instead, the things that have been happening are um, uh, that he's, he's showing concern about her Right, that could be taken as meaning on her behalf. Right, he's put himself out for her benefit, and of course, you know the like unappreciative harpy who's been turning him down, or that he's con- that she is like the source of some kind of concern. Right, like she's dangerous, she's an enemy, she's bad news, and he's anyway. Um, but uh, so I I love his recontextualization there. <laughs>
1: been the cruelest thing in the world how she has spurned me I cannot break her resolve the husband will soon return and I'm sorry to say a magician is not an easy thing to kill
0: and I'm sorry to say a magician will not be an easy thing to kill Well, okay. Yeah, I mean, true enough. Um, it is unfortunate to recognize. Um, and, oh, Rickle, I totally agree with you. Um, look at his coat. Um, notice how regal he looks here. This, I think, this is the fanciest dress we've seen from the gentleman to this point. Um, and it's the one where he's talking about making Stephen king, right? Remember that, um, you know, that the line that we get from Crazy King George, right? They're like, hey, you're king, well, let's be kings together, let's talk one king to another. That seems to be what we're getting from uh, the gentleman here to Stephen, right? I look like a king. Uh, Uh, maybe that's why he has the huge crown, because it's like Stephen can't help it that he doesn't have awesome hair like the gentleman, so the best he can do is have a big silver crown that sticks way up. Anyway, sorry, getting distracted, but Rick, I I do think that that's an interesting observation. But anyway, back to Arabella. She's a problem, right? And he can't break her resolve. He's now using these actively aggressive words, right? It's not that he was, you know... It's not that he was hurt or anything. It's just that uh, he needed to break her resolve, and he couldn't Heaving do it. To
1: kill. Especially not one who seems intent on monopolizing me. But if you were to be a king,
0: but if you were to be a king, notice the gentleman has here explicitly, um said that he is wanting to make Stephen king in order to serve his own ends. Right? Um, He wants to make Stephen a king, not because of any spontaneous affection he feels for Stephen, but because he... uh, because it will serve his ends, it will serve his purposes. (sighs) Okay. The next thing I wanted to talk about was Jonathan's magic in the peninsula. Uh, But... We um, don't. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Hang. On, okay. A couple of you have questions about his use of the word monopolizing. Let me go back for a second here.
1: It's not an easy thing to kill, especially not one who seems intent on monopolizing me. But if you were to be a
0: king, what does he mean? He's intent on monopolizing me. It's a really good point. He knows that Jonathan is trying to summon him. Uh, Though it's not really been a major theme with Jonathan yet. Um, Brian says he's (laughs) monopolizing the gentleman by being married to the woman he wants... Uh, Possibly. Um, Theory. Is he... Is it possible that he is eliding Jonathan and Norrell? Could he be connecting them in his mind? That is, he's been summoned three times. Right? Twice by Norrell and once by Strange. Is he, in his own mind here, just saying, like, this English magician has summoned me three times? Like, I can't get a moment's peace, right? I'm constantly being summoned by the English magician. Um, I wonder. I wonder. Um, Yeah. (laughs) He tasks me. He tasks me, says Sharon. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just like that. It's exactly like that. Um, I think it would be foolish for me to try to begin with, uh, the, with Jonathan's magic in the peninsula. So let me do a little preview and maybe this will help us to, well, it's okay because then we can talk about Waterloo at the same time next time. Um, so that'll probably work out. But the two last things I wanted to talk about today, which I'm not going to get to, are strange in the peninsula and uh, the tension between you know the sort of the the breach between normal and strange. Um, and I only had three clips for each of them, which means we got through exactly sixty five percent of the clips I wanted to do tonight. I'm actually kind of satisfied with that. but um, anyway, okay. There were three things that I was really three moments I was particularly interested in. I want to be looking at the progression in the peninsula. The first, the summoning of the road. The second, Jonathan Strange attempting and failing to move the forest. And the third, the raising of the dead Neapolitans. And in particular, I want to be looking at this as the progression of the relationship between Jonathan Strange and the magic, or between Jonathan Strange and English magic, particularly—that's um, especially what I wanted to what I wanted to look at. Um, and so many of the things that they changed there, I just absolutely love. I just you know, love so many of the innovations, things that they're con- that they've they've conveyed really powerfully by some of the things they've added and some of the things that they've altered. Um, Nancy, I couldn't believe they killed off Jeremy Johns either. But I loved it. I loved the death of Jeremy Johns. Um, I, I mean, you know, not that I grudged poor Jeremy Johns his life, but I, I, I loved it. Loved it. Um, uh, I loved it as an effective moment in the film. I thought it was. I thought it was beautiful. Uh, but anyway we'll come back to that. I mean in as much as anybody getting blown up by a cannonball can be beautiful um but um exactly Michael he doesn't play much of a role in the book, like he's all set up in his first appearance to be like this really important figure, and then he's there all the way through and and seems important, but he never actually really does anything um i, I liked his noble death um in the book so any okay uh or in the film. Um, so I want to talk about that, and uh, in, in, in looking at the, the, the tension between Strange and Norrell, again, what I wanted to look at there was, I wanted to look at the debate about the King's Roads, right, when, uh, when Norrell uh, is sort of blaming Jonathan for, for uh, traveling on the King's Roads. Um, the wonderful, uh, uh, the scene that begins with LaSalle's reaction to uh, Strange's review, the he murdered my book uh scene, uh which of course I just absolutely love the uh, love the phrasing. And um uh and then the of course, obviously the scene which of course you all knew I would want to talk about, uh the scene with Norrell and Strange after the publication of the review. Uh when I was delighted uh, to see, I, I really liked how they depicted Norrell, especially in that scene. You know, I thought that that was Norrell's high point in the entire book. Um, and, uh, you know, how much I loved Norrell in that scene. Uh, so I was, I was particular. It was one of the scenes that I was, you know, I, I kind of had a lot of pressure on as I was sort of seeing what they did with it. And I really, really liked what they did with it. Um, but anyway, okay, so those are the things that I want to talk about that we didn't get to. We'll talk about those, you know, I'll probably want to fold in a look at, uh, uh, the Battle of Waterloo. I just, I haven't seen the Battle of Waterloo yet, so I'm interested to see what we get, and I'm sure I'll probably want to consider it in the context of what we see of, uh, of Jonathan's magic. Um, but be, be, you know, remember what we saw of Jonathan, the way that they set up Jonathan and Mr. Norrell, and their different relationships with magic, and not just their different sort of personalities and flares, but the very the fundamentally different relationship that each one had with their own magic, and think about how we see that growing, and how the film emphasizes the change in development, uh, uh, especially of Strange, through that time. So I definitely want to talk about that. Definitely want to look at the, uh, the conflict between Norrell and Strange. Um, let's do the next two episodes. I am not even. I am not even going to pretend I am going to get to the last episode next time. Uh, so let's um, let's do the next two episodes for next time, uh, and then we'll do the final, the seventh episode uh, into in our bonus class, which I am certainly going to add. Let's just plan on that. So um, one more week, as it were. So thanks everybody. Um, I'll let you guys go now, and uh, and I look forward to talking about the Battle of Waterloo next time, and look at uh, Jonathan's magic, and we'll see how far we can get. Hopefully, we can get through comfortably through all s- the first six episodes uh, for next time. Uh, thanks everybody. Good night.